From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Next year, Australians will get to vote in a referendum and will be asked whether Australia should amend its constitution to create an Indigenous voice to parliament. In this episode from August, we spoke to the person to read the roadmap to that referendum out loud after the Uluru Statement from the Heart was agreed to. We'll be back with a summer series of special episodes on January 2nd, but until then, we're revisiting some of the best episodes of 2022. Today, we revisit this episode with someone who spent years working towards constitutional recognition, Chair in Constitutional Law at the University of New South Wales, Megan Davis. Megan, five years ago, after a process of consultation of dialogues, the Uluru Statement from the Heart was presented to the country, and you were actually the person who read that statement out loud for the very first time. Could you tell me what that statement is about for you? We gathered here at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Yeah, so the Uluru Statement from the Heart is the kind of top page of about an 18-page document known as the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So it's it does include the invitation that we issued to the Australian people, which is a one-page statement to the Australian people as to why we need this reform and why we need the help of the Australian people to persuade the political class and the political elite of the exigency of the change. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. I read it out in the conference for the first time and then out of the rock to the Australian people. And it was a really, yeah, powerful moment because it was the expression of quite an extraordinary two years of deliberative dialogue among our people about constitutional reform. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. I spent 2015 um, prior to the Ref Council as well, trying to think of ways and researching ways, looking at other constitutional processes, such as in Ireland and others, about how to engage our people again in a, in a process that would show the Australian government that we wouldn't support symbolism and that if there was to be constitutional recognition, it needed to be something substantive something that might make a difference on the ground, something might change people's lives, and that was the substance of the dialogues. We ran the dialogues in a way, though, as I said, based on kind of other constitutional deliberative dialogues. We ran it in a way that First Nations peoples felt um, comfortable and, and in control of the process. And so when I read the Uluru Statement from the heart out, I was reading out the words of the many thousands of First Nations people who participated in that process 
and wanted the Australian people to understand from the heart of Australia and from our heart why it is so critical that Australians um, learn as much as they can about the statement but also about the status quo. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. Because the Uluru Statement very much is about we need to do something different here. We've tried everything in this country, um, but we haven't tried constitutional recognition in a substantive way. So it was a huge responsibility and it remains a huge responsibility. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country and we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. And it's been five years since that moment and now the new government has committed to the statement and to holding a referendum. And there's a proposed question as well. Do you support an alteration to the constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? So, Megan, what is a voice to parliament and why is it being asked for? So the voice to parliament is, I guess, shorthand for a mechanism that enhances First Nations participation in democratic decision-making, such as law and policy, that are made about Indigenous communities uh, and Indigenous lives. The purpose of it is because there's a pretty strong evidence base that if you involve First Nations peoples in the design and articulation of policy frameworks and laws that impact their communities, then not only are they of a higher quality than if they're not involved, but they're more likely to work. The concern was that in Aboriginal affairs, we are always a political football. We're always subject to the ideology of one government to the next. So the idea behind an enshrined voice to parliament is that the notion of a representative body whose job it is to provide this input into the laws and policies that are made about communities, that it is set up in a way that governments can't just repeal or abolish this institution um, at the stroke of a pen without talking to any First Nations leader. And we say that that lack of sustainability, the lack of durability of these First Nations institutions actually drives the inequality and the disadvantage. And so there were many reasons that the dialogues prosecuted as to why an enshrined voice is so critical uh, in terms of constitutional recognition. Mm. And since the government committed to a referendum on on constitutional recognition, there has been a lot of questions about what that might look like, whether or not we're going to see more detail on the proposal, and then all this supposition about what a no campaign might look like. 
What do you make of all of these questions that have sprung up almost immediately? I think the debate has been framed by what I would think are pretty predictable columnists straight out of the gates declaring no campaigns and seeking more detail but in a very kind of disingenuous way. Just to be clear on this, there won't be the full detail, every I dotted and T crossed on how the thing will work, but there will be some there, there is debate now, Dave. I know, but from you, there, there is from a, you, from there your is, government. There is a document. There's a very lengthy there document. There is a document out there mm. that goes to many, many pages, as you know. I mean, it's been interesting to watch over the 10 weeks to see how news is created. I don't think that that's new to anyone, um, the way in which, you know, these kinds of stories are constructed. But, but how uh, it would function under your watch? That, that's the point. Hmm. Well, we're not there yet, no, David. But, that's but the this point. Is, look, this is the detail that some want to at least see, not in the Constitution, no, but, but to see from you. But, David, there will be. I think the framing of the debate, as I said, in that kind of Republicanesque way, you know, it's the government does not have to fund a yes or a no campaign. There are many ways in which a referendum campaign can be run. And I don't think that we our imagination about how this should or shouldn't operate needs to be fenced in by what happened in 1999. But I should say Australia's very rusty on referendums. I mean, a lot of there are some pretty prominent journalists who clearly don't fully understand the Referendum Machinery Act or the Constitution. That's neither here nor there because the entire nation is rusty on the civics aspect of this. And I think um you know, that will be cleaned up as we get closer to the ballot box about what will happen in terms of a referendum campaign. Our job is just to continue our work out with grassroots First Nations communities and Australian communities and and build, continue to build that movement of the Australian people for a better future. There are those who say that that's a Pollyanna approach to politics, but we say no, this is a people's movement. The Constitution was built to change. It is the Australian people that have to exercise their agency at that ballot box when this change happens. And that's the important thing, um, I think, here, is our people working with Australians to get this um, across the line. We'll be back in a moment. For Sloan Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloan Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a. 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. Megan, we've been speaking about the way that the media has framed the issue of a referendum and and the questions about detail and timelines and campaigns. And the the media framing is one consideration. But what about the the differences 
of opinions that we're seeing from politicians on both sides of the fence. Is that more of a challenge when it comes to bringing people with you on this? Look, I think at this point it's we're 10 weeks in. So if you're putting up a fence right now and saying I'm not going to vote for that when you actually don't have the final detail, to me that's not great governance and you're probably not going to support it. You know, people will make up their mind, you know, as a date is announced, as a referendum bill's passed, as it's clear what detail is provided to the Australian people about what the model looks like so that they can vote in an informed way at the ballot box. Um, I think now there's a lot of speculation, but, you know, I think they'll release detail and more more information about processes as they go along. I don't think they were ever going to release it the day after the election. And I think the discussion will settle once we have some substantive detail. There's a lot of impatience about that, but I think the framing of it will change as we, we get more detail and that will happen when it happens. And you mentioned what happened in 1999 before, the referendum that we had back then on the question of whether or not Australia should become a republic. And that became very controversial and the referendum ultimately failed. So what is the legacy of that failure and and how is that influencing this debate? Well, I mean, I say it's framing the debate So, as I said, the polls closed 90 minutes ago and already there's a pretty good indication of the result. We'll take a look at the tally so far. That's not surprising given it's pretty much the only frame of reference people have. But this is a very different thing, I think, to the Republic. Well, a quick look at how people are voting shows 44% support for yes, 56% no and... uh, So, to begin with, you know, we have a government that supports the change and we have a Prime Minister that supports the change. And so I think that issue can never be understated. When you pull the Republic bill and look at it, it required over 82 changes to the text of the Australian Constitution, some cosmetic and some not so cosmetic. But the point to be made there is that all of the detail in relation to the Republic model had to go into the text of the Constitution. And this is a very different creature because the detail is actually left to the Parliament to supervise in the way they would any piece of legislation. It's not required to put the bricks and mortar of the voice into the actual enabling provision. And I think it's really clear there's, there, there is a conflation of that issue in in the way in which the First Nations voice is being framed. So it's not surprising that people are using the Republic as their yardstick, but I think it's an inaccurate one. Mm. And there's no doubt that 2022 is very different to 1999 in, in a lot of ways, and so there is every chance that things will play out differently this time around. What would it mean for you personally, to see constitutional recognition happen? Oh, look, I think it's really important. I think um, it's important for a lot of First Nations people. The Uluru Statement from the heart was not just about a voice to Parliament. There's a very clear sequence there. Um, It is about setting a new roadmap for the nation in terms of engagement, and, and that first step starts with respect. That is what constitutional recognition is. It's about giving respect and legitimacy to the views and voices of First Nations peoples so that when government and policymakers are 
contemplating about what to do and how to act, they do that imbued with the voices of people from the ground. Constitutions play a really important role in providing the material conditions of a dignified human life, particularly when it comes to Indigenous peoples whose issues do fall outside the kind of majoritarian nature of the ballot box. This is a very common way in which constitutions, in which countries try to mitigate that very big gap between us and the majority. I think one of the really important things of the dialogues is our old people said, you know, our country is coming under a lot of stress the, the country needs some peace because what we are about to face as a people is extreme and this is one way to bring the nation together. Um, you know, our old people are dying and they want some peace for their country and this whole thing is very much imbued with that but it's also imbued with, you know, a, a great optimism they're not deterred at all because they also led the 1967 referendum, many of them, and many lived through it and many were kids. You know, when it comes to racism and race, these are the people that many lived through the protection era and lived on those reserves and missions that segregated them from the broader Australian community. Many were stolen generations. Our people aren't blind to racism, but there was a very strong belief in the decency of Australians and that they would understand why this was important and why this was a reform idea whose time has come. Megan, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you for having me. For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy on yeah, this. Yeah, if, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.